Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I imagine that someone really at the beginning of this journey of wanting to of starting their family being trans probably feels overwhelmed still even though things are much better now than they were a few years ago or 10 years ago or whenever it's okay to still feel like you're not sure what to do which path to take you know even now I'm sitting here trying to grow my family and I what sometimes question should I adopt should I do surrogacy should I become pregnant again like it's never something that becomes really straightforward and easy and obvious because being trans is still a challenge in this world right but that doesn't mean that you should give up hope. Welcome and hello to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast. I am your only host today. I'm Michael. Today we're going to be talking about surrogacy for trans people and I'm going to be joined by some incredible guests. Freddie McConnell, journalist, writer, podcaster and parent. Uh, Freddie also documented his journey to give birth as a trans man in the incredible 2019 documentary Seahorse. My other guest is one of our friends, colleagues, as well as being the leading LGBTQ allies within the fertility treatment, and that is Carol Gilling-Smith. She's the CEO and medical director of the Agora Clinic in Hove, the largest fertility clinic in Sussex, offering both NHS and privately funded treatment. Carol is a consultant gynaecologist with particular interest in fertility and reproduction. And finally, I'm joined by Andrew Spearman from Leighton's Head of Family Law and Surrogacy and friend of the show. We're going to be talking about fertility preservation and surrogacy for trans people. You're going to love this episode. It's absolutely brilliant. Hello and welcome. This is a, a very busy podcast episode today. So I am joined in the studio by three guests. I'm joined by Andrew Spearman from Leighton's. Hello. Hello again. And I'm joined by the incredible Freddie McConnell. God. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm also joined by the CEO and medical director of the Agora Clinic in Brighton. How are you, Carol? Smith? I'm feeling great. Thanks, Mike. Wonderful. We're here to talk today all about fertility preservation and surrogacy for trans people. So it's an episode that I think is going to be of great value from an educational point of view. And I wanted to get everyone's views on a number of topics that's both factual uh, and it's going to cover the law in terms of surrogacy law. Mrs. Spearman? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to obviously be looking at the science and fertility preservation. And Dr. Carol Gilling-Smith is going to help with that. And through the course of this particular episode, Freddie will also be sharing his journey with us. So hello, Carol. Hi there. How are you? I'm absolutely fine. I'm feeling, I'm feeling very excited about uh, joining this podcast. Good, good. Well, we wanted to talk in particular. It's been quite a year for the fertility industry during the pandemic and treatments being installed and started and restarted and, and I guess the uncertainty generally for, for those trying to conceive. We wanted to invite you here today because ultimately of the work that you do for the LGBTQ community uh, and particularly around fertility preservation. So firstly, thank you. Tell us a little bit about the Agora and the work that you do. So the Agora Clinic is a very typical fertility clinic. It's set in Brighton and we we do all sorts of different fertility treatments, including IVF and ICSI for, you know, for all couples, including heterosexual couples and for uh, lesbian couples and gay couples having surrogacy. But we also have a particular interest having a, obviously a, a big LGBTQ plus community in the, in the locality to tailor our treatments to those specific areas that the community needs. And so we are helping same-sex women, particularly with donor sperm treatments. We're helping gay couples to have children through surrogacy, often involving known donors or unknown donors for eggs. And we're really also expanding, actually, the amount of work we do with trans people because they come to us not only to preserve their fertility, looking you know at the future, but also for the time now to have children. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's very much something we've seen a lot of growth in in the last few years. And have you seen fertility trends and fertility evolve over the last years that support the LGBTQ plus community? Huge difference in the last uh, decade. I think when I when I opened the clinic, which was 2007, we were just seeing a trickle of patients coming through, predominantly same-sex women, a little bit of solo motherhood. And as the times moved on, and I think particularly the last three or four years, the conversation around modern parenting has just sort of erupted. It's 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 kind of Everybody's comfortable talking about it. I live in a community where well over 10% of our population comes from the LGBTQ plus community. So, so, you know, it's very normal to be seeing two dads, two mums with their children. So I, I think we are in an advantageous position to, to be accepted. But patients come to us because we're sensitive and we can guide them, not only you know, to explore the different routes that they can take, but also to make them feel very comfortable and supported on that journey. So definitely down where we are in Brighton, the Agora Clinic, we have a lot of patients coming through. And part of my work really is just opening up the door and making sure they understand all their options right at the beginning so they can make some really, really informed choices. And am I right in thinking one of the objectives when you opened the Agora was specifically about supporting the LGBTQ community? Definitely. It's always been my aim in life. I'm a doctor first and foremost, and I open my doors to everybody. My mantra is first do no harm. And and you don't choose and pick your patients. You can't. And the the moment that it becomes acceptable to to be treating different people, same-sex women, you, you are there to actually make sure society understands that this is actually very safe parenting, very good parenting, in fact, fabulous parenting. And, and your job isn't just as a doctor to treat your patients, but also to educate the society around. And you're building a surrogacy programme at the Agora, and that's building quite steadily now. And sometimes surrogacy can be seen as a more complex route to parenthood, certainly from a legal perspective. Nice segue to Andrew. Talk to us, Andrew, about the law with regards to surrogacy and 
And then we'll talk about how you would then navigate that pathway if you were trans uh, and if you were des- wanting to build your family through surrogacy that way. So give us a, one, a whistle-stop 101 on surrogacy, please. A whistle-stop tour. So the surrogacy laws are still stuck in a bit in the dark ages. If anybody has listened to my, my rants about this before, they'll know it well that I, I call it the dark ages because it's uh, the 1980s where we had our original surrogacy journeys and the law and the parliament at the time took a very proactive step, in my view, to not to criminalise surrogacy, but to inhibit the support around it. So the professionals in the sector, such as Carol and myself, who look to help people through the journey, it makes it a bit more difficult to actually help and guide them. Whereas now the much more modern trend and the, the move away from that is to help people and actually put couples and family formations and children at the heart of that decision. But surrogacy is still a strong route, I would say, for couples looking to have children and for single parents as well. The, the only snag is that the surrogate will always remain as the legal parent on the birth certificate. So I would say to couples looking at it is, or individuals, so I say, is make sure that you obtain your parental order at the end of the process to make sure that you realign legal parenthood to where it's meant to be and where it should be and where you intend it to be. Is there any difference with the parental order pathway for trans community when embarking on surrogacy? Fortunately, the in this case, the law is quite blind to it. The same statutory provisions apply, the same output applies as well. In some ways, as Freddie will probably know just as well, is the law didn't really think about uh, these things. The law at the time when it was created didn't conceive or, or intend to conceive that trans people would have children or, or could either have them themselves like Freddie or actually go through the surrogacy routes. All the ideas around fertility preservation, uh, I don't think they really put their mind to parental orders. Uh, it was uh, Parental orders themselves were a bit of an adjunct. I got a hold of an hour of debate in Parliament when actually it was it's one of the central tenets for, for family formations. So take that all in its stead. No, there isn't a difference. And the, the same legal provisions apply, the same rules apply. The only discrepancy and difference is, is what you, is unique to trans individuals. And that's just like what Carol was saying before about the fertility preservation and how trans individuals would intersect with the legal professionals and medical professionals and ensuring that they get the right advice, the right support, like they do at the Agora Clinic. And you get that at the right point. So although the law doesn't apply differently, their journey may be slightly different if they get perhaps not as broad advice that they should write at the start or when they're having their fertility treatment for them to understand what is available to them in terms of surrogacy. So I think it's it's a nuanced approach, but the law in a blunt tool is is blind to mm. uh, trans identity. And Freddie, that's a, a huge deal for you and has been a, a journey that's just, I could imagine, has been painful and frustrating. Tell us about your journey. It's funny, like sitting here, hearing about this, it's taking me back almost to the over a year long process I had of figuring out how to start my family and feeling like I was between a rock and a hard place a lot of the time, feeling overwhelmed by trying to make a decision between some one thing that felt hard and like I couldn't really see a way forward and another thing that felt hard and I couldn't really see a way forward. So either way, I'd have to strike out alone. So I suppose ultimately for me, when it came to deciding to pause testosterone and become pregnant, it's because it felt like the simplest, safest option. And what I mean by that mostly is that I could just be in control of it. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to surrogacy, there were definitely ways in which surrogacy massively appealed to me, Mm -hmm. not having to come off T4 as long. So I could have just had my eggs retrieved and then carried by someone else. 
and you know go down the same route with a donor mm-hmm. in that scenario but i didn't know how to do that i didn't know that there were clinics existed and i don't even know you know that we're talking about sort of 2015 2016 so whether surrogacy was something that the agora was supporting as much back then i didn't i didn't know that you know a clinic could give you information about surrogacy i sort of understood that it was this in the shadows type process where mm. you had to find someone somehow yeah. through some magical <laughs> process some mysterious process <laughs> yeah and it would probably cost loads of money and or you could go to the states and do it but that's completely ridiculous because that's so much more money and that mm-hmm. kind of thing you know so i sort of scoped out the fact that like i didn't know anyone personally that would be my surrogate <laughs> i remember like recently hearing about this um, amazing family in the states where the grandmother cecile carried her granddaughter mm. and when i heard about that i sort of i remember looking out of the side of my eye at my mom <laughs> just being like don't even go there <laughs> it's not happening <laughs> fair enough so yeah but then, and then you know listening to what andrew's saying about the legal side of it it's it's it is kind of painful because you know apart well i suppose i feel lucky in a way that i could do i did choose pregnancy and it worked well for me and it did work out the way i wanted it was simple and safe and i had a positive experience ultimately and i think surrogacy would have been so much more complicated but you know then when i come to register my kid as a as a trans man my only option is to register as mother whereas if i'd have done surrogacy I'd, and I'd have used my eggs, I could have registered as parent. Well, it, my parental order would say parent. That's just bizarre. And, and obviously speaks to the fact that trans people were never taken into account when any of this was, was thought about. And then were, and then when the government was given the opportunity to rectify that with the case that I bought, just doubled down and put their fingers in their ears and said, la, la, la. So, yeah. And do we think this will be picked up in the the APPG or the Law Commissioner's report? Do we think that's, you know, people are going to wake up and actually think, come on now, let's just fix this? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the uh, surrogacy as a sector has certainly pushed and one of the, the, the consultations and, and those that work in the sector are supportive of is for the surrogate mother not to be mother. And that, that terminology, if you work in a sector, you don't call them surrogate mothers, they're surrogates. And the fact that they go on to the birth certificate as the mother and even better that their husband goes on as the father, even if they have absolutely no wish to be there and obviously no genetic connection either. But that that presumption in law that is there to help other couples works against those in surrogacy. But their push is therefore to not be on the birth certificate at all. So if that push goes further and forward and actually follows the natural conclusion, if they give birth and they're not going down as the the mother on the birth certificate why is it that this this tenant this fundamental tenant that the government can't seem to wrap their head around that you don't need to have a mother named on the birth certificate for the child to be any less loved or for them to be raised by two parents who love them and that that child is not harmed in any way that that child has parents and parenthood is what we're looking at here not the terminology that's associated with it so i think actually the natural conclusion of that will be uh, another limb of this whether it all ties that way i think it remains to be seen okay and also i suppose it's important to say that that doesn't mean that they won't know their origins and they won't know who gave birth to them because i think that's often something that people kind of go to but the idea that the mother equals the person that gave birth to you it's just no longer 
it's no longer true for so many queer mm-hmm. families. Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's interesting because I, I would say to trans individuals who are looking at becoming parents, certainly faced with the government's position with Freddie's case and how they're forced to now register as mother on a birth certificate or not as father, depending on, on the, the, the way it's structured, is surrogacy could be an attractive option to sidestep that while this hasn't been resolved and Freddie's case will take years, sorry Freddie, it will, years to actually work its way through. Even then, you know, you've got to implement whatever it is that comes outside of it. But for couples who, or individuals who are looking at it, surrogacy actually is attractive because, as Freddie just said, you get a new birth certificate issued with parent and parent. They, they, they are specifically designed for surrogacy and you have the un- underlying birth certificate will have the surrogate still registered as the birth mother and the husband or spouse or sort of partner as the second parent if they are. But you get just that birth certificate. And although it's not perfect and it's certainly not something that, you know, you, you, you still have that underlying birth certificate, I think it's something that's actually quite attractive to at least have something that doesn't have you misgendered mm-hmm. and goes straight to the core mm-hmm. of, of speaking out, speaking for Freddie, I suppose, as to the core of what is the problem and that misgendering that happens from day dot of this child's life. And it's your family, your loving family and your loving child, and they get it wrong from day dot. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, I suppose the, the, the ability to have a parental order, therefore, is quite attractive. For, for that side of it, which may not have been explained to trans individuals who approach agencies or clinics or people who don't understand surrogacy as a huge sort of sector and, and the law and the, the complications or the payments or finding a surrogate or all the shenanigans that go around it. When actually you get to the other side, you look to where you're trying to get to, we want a birth certificate which just has parent and parents on it. And surrogacy actually does that for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. you touched on a moment ago when you were looking to inquire about building your family you weren't really signposted as to right these clinics can specialize in fertility preservation or surrogacy or whatever it might be and it seems to be that there's still a massive area of underrepresentation within the UK from a clinic point of view that are maybe not as active as the Agora that have a patient base located where there's there's a particular demographic 
why do you think fertility clinics still don't signpost the information accurately or what could healthcare professionals do better to signpost that information better it's it's so overwhelming when you think about where we are with trans healthcare in the uk i don't know you know with the agora if you have people reporting these kinds of things but we're, we're still you know if you're a trans man and you're about to start going taking testosterone the likelihood is you'll still be told that, that it will make you infertile so we've still it's so elementary the reform that's needed and and even going to the care of trans youth and what they're told about their fertility and that sort of thing so the idea that you could have a gender clinic who was i mean i suppose seeing patients within months rather than years of them being referred there to then giving accurate non-judgmental guidance about fertility options it's just it shouldn't be but it's almost unimaginable right at this point which is tragic but it is at the same time it is really good to hear that clinics like the agora exist i absolutely did not have that experience at my clinic i didn't know that that was possible i suppose you know i suppose it's kind of obvious in a way get down to brighton and you'll have a great time like <laughs> but my nearest place to look was london so that's what i did and and i chose a clinic on the basis of it having a discount mm-hmm. <laughs> for my first appointment and by that point i'd done lots of research online i saw so i was going in fully armed with all the information i needed and feeling quite confident in myself but yeah if i was like f- earlier on in the process if i was maybe younger or wanting to explore my options for the first time and didn't have access to these kind of secret facebook groups and hadn't found people on youtube by mistake and that kind of thing i don't know where i would have started so it is amazing to hear that that exists now i mean i so the clinics I've been to, there's two, and it's not that I had a bad experience. I think, and I think some people do, but for me, it's just been, it's been kind of neutral. Like mm-hmm. I went in sort of thinking, well, I don't think anyone's going to be actively rude to me, but I definitely felt often that I was saying things to reassure the clinicians and say, I'm pretty sure that I'm not infertile. I know that tea doesn't damage your fertility. And, and they would kind of nod and be like, okay, you know, and then and maybe like we do some tests and then that would be proven or borne out in the results and I would tell them what I wanted to do and they would be yeah very respectful but giving this sense of like no one's really wanting to address head on Mm -hmm. who I am and where I'm coming from and certainly no one sort of gave me the impression that they could talk me through other options or so I kind of had to go like I say fully armed with that information and and be treated almost in spite of who I was not because of who I was which is you know so it's all it all worked out fine but I think if I was, I don't know, not sort of, again, maybe even sort of being read, going in there with a certain amount of male privilege, like white male privilege being like, I can kind of talk in a way where I seem like I don't really know what I'm talking about. And I know, so, and but other people, you know, might not be coming from that perspective. And, and I sort of dread to think where they might. Where they end up. Yeah. And, and what kind of experience they might have and not being taken so seriously. So. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear that progress is being made. And Carol, you were nodding through that in the beginning in terms of more needing to be done from the very early stages of making sure that people do seek appropriate support when it comes to fertility. Do you think there's a a disconnect there between ensuring that trans youth are better informed to take care of their own fertility and family building? Absolutely. I I think my own journey was one of, of discovery through my patients. I I started this sort of journey with my trans folk coming to the clinic, you know, maybe eight, nine years ago. And I wanted to build a much stronger 
place for them to come and talk about their parenting now and their parenting in the future. So over the years, I've educated myself and in educating myself, I've educated my staff and I've educated other clinics. And that the part of educating other clinics is still in the early days, but I've given recently, as you know, some talks. So what were the main concerns? Well, gender, you've got to realise that, you know, you can't just have a stereotypical heterosexual clinic here. And, and so we'd already done some of that work because we'd, we'd set ourselves up to, to treat the whole community. And just changing pronouns, we just, we had, a, we had a questionnaire for patients, sperm booklet, not man's booklet, or it's just, it's a history booklet for people who have sperm or people who have eggs. And it just then made it much easier because there wasn't, there wasn't any gender there. And, and then we, you know, moved onto the website. But one of the common things was triggering things, you know, trigger words, trigger diagrams, trigger things. So when I, I go into the consultation, I, I listen to that and, I, and I've created these personas which don't really have any association with gentle organs because that, that really is bad. And you've got to talk in a way that will comfort and make people feel hope for their future parenting options, not feel this is where I want to shut the door and, and walk away. And they need to also have a space, and we've created that on our website, where they can they can discover. And I've created videos. What is it like to freeze eggs and what do we do here? And what is it like to freeze sperm? So that they have that opening to, to find out a bit more before they, they plunge into a clinic. And then, you know, having a, a, a trans coordinator so that somebody who's on the end of a phone, we don't send out lots of information booklets. That, who wants to read a booklet? Talk to me. You know, we're here. Come and talk to us. What's your journey like so far? And being able to talk to somebody is the most important human thing we've got. It's that communication. So a lot of the patients who first ring in are very, very nervous. And we, we talk through what that journey might look like. And once they come and see the doctor, there's no decisions made without them fully understanding the whole journey. So we paint the picture of freezing eggs now, but what it might look like in the future. Who might they have a relationship? Could they use surrogacy? Would they want to think about carrying? Most of them say, what? No, I, I wouldn't want to do that. They say, we don't have to make a decision now. What we want to do now is give you that, that whole painting of what the future might look like and and I think that's generally missing that's missing most clinics and that's why I'm working a lot on and trying to make sure that we have that information and then the other important thing is as you quite rightly say there's a big weight to be seen in the gender identity clinic and whilst the gender identity clinics I mean certainly the Tavistock they will always mention the option of fertility preservation is there for patients the private clinics won't and I think that that's where we see a lot of patients that just don't they haven't been given any information by anybody and they want to start you know testosterone particularly and they, and they need to know well actually you can start testosterone and come off it and freeze eggs and this is the top sort of time scale or you could start estrogen and come off it and freeze sperm so uh, I, there's a gap there in communication yeah I think one of the biggest steps from what you're talking about is making me think that, like definitely there's this assumption that for trans men and trans masculine people if you're talking about using your own eggs then you're talking about pregnancy and so definitely it would be helpful to make sure people are aware that that's, that's not the only option. And I think that, yeah, and that's a kind of cultural thing in the UK more generally where surrogacy is doesn't tend to be in our mental list of options for starting a family. And then and then the other thing being, yes, fertility preservation isn't something where if you don't do it before you start to transition, that's it. It's like a sort of hard line that you can't come back from because I think it's a decision that a lot of younger people find themselves having to make. Uh, or feeling like they have to make and it's that's not fair it's not fair on them it's not fair on their parents I, I heard statistics a while back from a guy in the states called Tristan Reese who was pregnant and there's uh, research carried out that more 
queer youth are likely to report not wanting to be parents when they're younger compared to their cis straight peers. But then as you follow people throughout life, older queer people report higher levels of regret for not starting families. So there is a, there is definitely a disconnect there. And it's not to say that everyone is going to change their mind and everyone wants to be a parent and everyone should be a parent at all. It's nothing about that. It's just if there is such a discrepancy between that sort of, no, I can't do that. No, I don't want to do that versus I wish I'd had options, actually. Mm-hmm. We need to close that gap. It shows that there's a lack of information. Mm-hmm. It, it, it demonstrates that there's something missing there because there's that disconnect of, what do I do? You know, who's going to mm-hmm. guide me? Carol, what can what can healthcare professionals do more to help bridge that? Yeah, I, I'll mention another study. It's a study in Melbourne, just over 100 trans folk. And I think around 62% trans women froze sperm. None of the trans men went for egg freezing. It was just too wow. complex. They didn't know about it. It seemed like there's going to be internal procedures. I don't want to go mm, there. Yeah. It was it was the lack of knowledge. Which and, is triggering. Which and, is yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's a, that's a classic example. So my personal experience that I, I think I would have felt exactly, I mean, I did feel exactly the same when I was coming up to start tea. I mean, it wasn't helped by the fact that the consultant referred to egg freezing sort of almost under his breath you know as if it was something that NHS probably wouldn't fund and almost like this implication of like if I was quote a real man I shouldn't even care about it because like why would I want kids as a man sort of thing that's kind of where we're at culturally often in the gender clinics so I wasn't ready to do that then because it was triggering and I just dismissed it and I did what a lot of people in the early 20s would do would just be like oh you know I'll worry about that later kind of thing even though I knew deep down that it was something that was really important to me but actually that was okay because once I'd transitioned and been two or three years on tea, then I was ready to do it. Then I could hack the idea of pausing tea because, like, you know, I knew that my voice wouldn't go back to being high. I knew I'd always keep, like, my facial hair. The stuff that does maybe doesn't really doesn't make sense to cis people, but, like, I knew I could be me going through that process, and it didn't mean delaying transition. It didn't mean going through that process being read as a woman and that kind of thing. So... I think that's, yeah, it's also something that's missing from the treatment is sort of like, yeah, we understand that you might not be able to do this now because of your age and because of where you are at in life and because of your dysphoria. But maybe this is something you want to consider in two or five or 10 years time. And that's fine. You can you can do it then. And I think so many more people would be open to it at that point. And of course, there wasn't much science available to us as doctors five years ago, but some Really good studies are coming out in the last two or three years showing that you could be on testosterone and come off for about three months and get just as good eggs to collect and freeze and then go back onto it after and your I egg cycle. I would have never have thought that. Nobody knows mm-hmm. that, but I'm getting that information out there. So you can start yeah. and come off testosterone for, for three, four months. Normally we say you know three cycles and, and then have exactly the same process and get as many eggs. And and something else that I learned from you, Carol, a moment ago is storage limits on freezing eggs and sperm. Talk to us about the limit for this type of situation. So the, the, the law of the land is determined by the regulatory body, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority that we refer to as the HFEA. And for anybody freezing eggs or sperm or embryos, there's a 10-year storage limit unless you can come back in 10 years and prove that your fertility has been permanently impaired. So that would apply to somebody who'd had perhaps chemotherapy for cancer. Just recently, perhaps in the last year and a half, two years, we've seen much more equality in NHS funding. So whilst NHS funding was there to to, to freeze to, to freeze eggs or sperm for cancer treatment, it wasn't there for trans people, but it's changing. That's good. But you have to then prove after 10 years 
although the NHS probably won't necessarily pay for storage beyond 10 years, you have to prove to keep your eggs legally in storage that you have had permanent fertility impairments. Now, strictly speaking, for most people on testosterone or on oestrogen, you could say that's a perfectly valid you know, argument. And I think most people would say that. You're living that the gender that you want to live in and your fertility has been impaired. We'll test that. There's certainly, obviously, plenty of scope if you've had you know, surgery, removed your ovaries or, or testicles. So that's interesting. It'll, we'll, we'll see what happens mm-hmm. there. Freddie, you documented your journey to parenthood in Seahorse. What did you learn about that, that particular journey? About yourself, about the whole process? I mean, I learned that like making a film about something really hard is doubly hard. <laughs> you know, uh, actually being the film was made by Jeannie Finley and I, and I kind of went into it knowing that I probably couldn't do it all myself. I definitely couldn't have. So I wanted to work with a much more accomplished and experienced director like Jeannie and very pleased to have got to meet her and, and, and do that. But I know that she found it difficult as a filmmaker to get me to talk you know I I sort of yeah I think the whole experience for me of being pregnant or more actually I should say coming off testosterone was more was harder than I thought it would be it definitely plunged me back into dysphoria to an extent that I'd never really experienced before I think because I'd transitioned I sort of knew how comfortable life could be so it's sort of harder to go back to to not being so comfortable whereas before I'd sort of just gotten used to life being that hard so yeah the being off tea was the hard bit but then pregnancy itself was you know not necessarily difficult I I had nausea and that kind of thing that was really not great but the bump having a bump and feeling the kicks and that kind of thing was kind of reassuring in a way quite sort of reminding me constantly of why I was doing this why I was putting myself through this I mean I remember traveling up to London with my mum and my newborn I mean he would have been about eight weeks old going to the hospital to see my endocrinologist to I thought it was going to be to get a prescription to go back on testosterone because I had a supportive endocrinologist which was wonderful uh, and kind of rare in this country sadly but actually we were there in the room and he turned around and was like well do you want a shot now (laughs) and I'm smiling because I just remember feeling euphoria and then just bursting into tears (laughs) Uh, I wasn't expecting him to offer me that there and then as anyone who's been on tea will know in this country it's quite it's quite a tricky convoluted process and you often have to even do things like source your own needles and sort of then teach the nurse how to inject it and all sorts of but you know he knows what he's doing so he turned around and was like yeah here we go and uh, I remember feeling very much like almost like a, a movie sense of like I've done it. I stopped tea back in September, how many years ago? Well, I suppose it would have been two years by that point. And it's come full circle, all these kind of cheesy things. But yeah, and that sense of like, it was worth it, no regrets. I was absolutely sort of straight back to where I'd been before, before I'd stopped tea. All the lovely changes and stuff kept coming. My beard got thicker, you know, it was, and so within about, I suppose maybe like nine months to a year, it was like I'd never been off tea, even though I'd gotten pregnant and given birth in the meantime so yeah yeah amazing very hard but amazing um give us a lasting thought please in terms of uh, there's someone listening that's been in your shoes that is listening to this to have some hope to have some guidance to hear from professionals that can actually tell them you know what this is possible what would you you're in their ears now what would you say to them i guess like i, I imagine that someone 
really at the beginning of this journey of wanting to of starting their family being trans probably feels overwhelmed still even though things are much better now than they were a few years ago or 10 years ago or whenever it's okay to still feel like you're not sure what to do which path to take you know even now i'm sitting here trying to grow my family and i sometimes question should i adopt should i do surrogacy should i become pregnant again like it's never something that becomes really straightforward and easy and obvious because being trans is still a challenge in this world right but that doesn't mean that you should give up hope just seek out as much information as you can just keep reading keep listening keep talking to people and eventually a kind of it will emerge what you should do kind of thing and I'm just going to quote Tristan again because he said this amazing thing once he but he once said you know if you're trans and you're trying to start a family hold on to that dream fiercely like don't let go of that dream but hold on lightly to how you're going to get there which I think is just beautiful yeah Thank you so, so much to my amazing guests for joining today. I, do you know what? I think one of the joys of doing this is the fact that every single episode, I come away learning something new. And I think what is so enjoyable about this episode is that I could see that I'm in a room full of talent, whether you know, you're a lawyer or a consultant gynecologist or, you know, you're a journalist and, and someone with lived experience. Everyone learned something today. And through the incredible being that is this podcast and sharing these experiences, it was just a, a joy to share both Freddie's lived experience and also listen to the work that Dr. Carol Gillingsmith has also done. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. If you enjoyed that and you'd like to have a listen to more of the series on Apple Podcast, Acast, Spotify and the My Surrogacy Journey membership portal, which you can find at our website on www.mysurrogacyjourney.com. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.